Welcome to Reframing Our Stories. This podcast is dedicated to deconstructing the stories we've been told about who we are and how we're supposed to be. I'm your host, Kara Houck. In today's episode, I'll be talking with my really good friend, Sarah Johnson, who I absolutely adore and does amazing work for her community. But I wanted to prepare you as listeners that there may be a trigger warning. We will be talking about a death of a child in this episode, and I know that that's hard for many. So I invite you to do what you need to to care for yourself. But in this episode, Sarah shows the depth of who she is as a woman, as a mom, as a human, and she holds so much wisdom. So as though it could be painful to hear, I invite you to listen to the truth-telling that Sarah has to offer. I met Sarah in Battle Creek, Michigan, the spring of 2010. I learned quickly that her sister went to youth group with me, which was quite unusual since she was in a different town. So we instantly made a connection. Sarah was nice with kind eyes with a bit of quirk, and I knew she and I could be friends. But we didn't become friends until the summer of 2011. Sarah is someone who teaches me how to enter in and to be humble, to learn about my privilege, find beauty and difference, and has taught me how to sit with the uncomfortable. I learned from her that when we are present with others in a stillness that makes us ache, we are then embraced by the wholeness of ourselves and the others who we have encountered. Sarah, for me, has reframed stories around grief and race. So welcome, Sarah. Johnson. Thank you, you, friend. (laughs) Make me sound so, I don't know, important. (laughs) Thank you. You are important. Okay. You're very important to me, for sure. Yeah. I love having you in my life, Kara. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you going on this um, fun little journey of mine of Mm -hmm. doing this podcast and talking about important things that people do not talk about regularly, I would say. Correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you want to add in any of how we met to, (laughs) really vague. (laughs) Wasn't really vague. I think, what else do I want to say? We met because I started attending the church where your husband was a pastor. Yes. Yeah. And maybe we'll get into the whole like, church and relationship with God peace later. I know that was something maybe that we want to talk about. Mm -hmm. I can at least say that that was my first time trying to go back to church after a long hiatus. And I was really glad to find the two of you there because it made it feel like, oh, there are people here I can relate to Mm -hmm. and it will be lovely. And then (laughs) I got to know you and your children and your family. And I feel like you're a person that I can always uh, trust to be real in a conversation. Like I, you, you're not a person full of pretense, which helps me relate to you and love you even more. Oh, Plus, you, we you. just have fun together. We do have fun together. <laughs> we like to jump in fields. <laughs> yes, <laughs> frolic, <laughs> frolic together. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Um. Yeah. Where do we go from here? So I will say it was. So Sarah and I, we started to really become friends when she and I were, we decided to be chaperones. Wasn't that when we first really like? I think so. This is a very good bonding, bonding experience for us. Yes. (laughs) We took two youth. (laughs) Two youth, two (laughs) grownups. We were super well chaperoned. (laughs) To this enormous youth gathering that. Um, the ELCA Lutheran Church puts on every year, not everywhere, that's not right, every three years, mm-hmm. and where there's like over 30,000 youth. So Sarah and I went, and it was in New Orleans. That was in mm-hmm. 2011. 
Mm-hmm. And no, that was 2012 because I was pregnant. So, and I think that's where we just started to really talk. And I feel if I can just, am I able to just go there? We're just going to mm-hmm. go there. So for me, it was really hard because of my own issues of being able to just enter in with Sarah because she experienced a loss, a great loss. And I had not, did not know how to actually be there in that loss, I want to say. Hmm. It was hard because she unfortunately experienced a loss of a child. And I, my child was around the same age as hers. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, it was like, it almost paralyzed me in being able to talk with her. And mostly because on my side of the story is my family grew up, I grew up in a family who didn't talk about death. Like we didn't even know when some relatives died, mm. which is strange. And so my whole idea of grief was really warped, I want to say. But it was like, all I wanted to do was like go to her and, and hug her. And I felt paralyzed and I didn't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think when we were on that bus for 16 hours was the first time where I was like, so you need to get over yourself and you just need to talk to her as moms and as women mm-hmm. <laughs> and just be there. So, and then I feel like it was also at that ex- place too, where you were having moments of a relationship with God Right. Like in those times where you're just like, hey, I have so many feelings towards you. And I'm like kind of <laughs> angry and pissed. And I, I don't know. This is what I witnessed. So you can tell me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. But it was almost like I'm really angry and pissed, but I also need you. And are you going to be there for me or are you going to continue to be poopy? <laughs> if I can say that. <laughs> sure. Because <laughs> that's what I felt. <laughs> <laughs> that was not like even poetic or like lovely in any way. But I feel like that was it. Like, like we feel like that. Like, why are you being crappy right now? You know? Yeah. I'm really glad that you um, did, I guess, in your words, get over yourself and talk to me. <laughs> I think. So, I mean, I can tell a little bit of the story just mm-hmm. so people yeah. are aware. In. 2010, our uh, we our our son died in a car accident at our house, and he was two weeks past his first birthday. Our son Kiefer, and so obviously this was a really unexpected event, and it changed our whole lives. And you know, there's a, there's a lot to say about it, I suppose. And it's been almost 10 years now. So, you know, I'm a different person than I was then. Carrie, you're probably a different person than you were then. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate you naming that it felt weird to approach me to ask about something like that. And it strikes me hearing you say, you wish you could have, you wanted, you felt this urge to just come to me and just hold me or hug me. Um, and I love that. And right now, I'm a person who could totally receive that. And I don't know that in 2012, I would have been the person I am now that could receive that, even mm-hmm. though I think I wanted it. So, you know, it's complicated, I guess. And it's, for me, always a little bit tricky to, like, try to think back to where I was at a certain time in the past and not filter through all the years that have happened since then. Mm-hmm. So that sounds very rambly. I don't think it sounds rambling. I mean, it's a hard topic. I mean, it's something where it's just so, we've talked before where you're like, it's almost like people weren't able to give you what you needed, but it's almost like you said, like, were you able to even receive it? Because it was like your entire world fell apart. And I've grown an awful lot as a person in the last 10 years, not just because of results of this event, but like other things in my life too that have made me more of a whole person than I think I was at that time. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess, let me think, let me talk a little bit about the God part because yes, there was anger and I needed something that I wasn't getting. And I think actually that it's related more to the church 
than to God. And so for me, those two things are not at all the same. Oh, no, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't really know what my, I don't know if I've ever had a real relationship with God to even reflect on. I don't, I mean, I consider myself at this point an agnostic, and I think I was even back then. I just kind of felt I have kids now. I'm supposed to raise them in the church because I right. baptized them, and I said I would. So let's do this thing. <laughs> let's Maybe go. we'll meet some people. I don't know. <laughs> like, and it came more from that than from any real like connection with a deity, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I, yeah, I definitely still feel like church in general provides very little of what humans actually need. Mm. Um, and the more I've learned about race, I think that's particularly true in white Christian churches. Yeah. Same so, with that. If you can. Yeah. I just, like we are so dead at church. Like we don't, feel things at church. What is God for if it's not supposed to be connecting to our whole inner selves mm-hmm. and to each other? It's, I feel like we, it's more and more, I think as I'm getting older too, it, and being someone who has experienced church so differently now that I'm a pastor's wife, mm-hmm. you know, like it's like we go in and it's okay, everyone get tidied up, pin it all together and sit and be still and be responsive and behave Mm -hmm. and listen to the music and sing, but don't move, you know, don't experience. And it's, there's a part of me that gets frustrated because I feel like it's sterile. It's super sterile. And I feel like it should be a, like we, you know, I have a lot of broken parts and I feel like I want to go to a place and be like, I don't have my shit together. And yep. I would like to just be real in that instead of feeling like I need to be as perfect as I can be so that yes. you will accept me. Yes. All mm. of that. And I think all of that is totally wrapped up in white culture. And mm. I say that because, you know, I it wasn't my career in 2010 or 12 when we became friends to do anti-racism and anti-oppression work like that came to me later in 2015 16 is when I left my teaching career to to pursue this more directly but the more and more I've learned I think it felt like coming into anti-racism work and anti-oppression work feels coming it's like I found the thing that was missing in all this other stuff that I just could not connect to at church or with my, some of my social circles or even in my own family, like that sterility, perfectionism and unwillingness to actually feel things. Mm -hmm. Now it has a name Mm. and now I can find, and now I know where it came from and why we did that to ourselves and what kind of work we have to do to undo it, to get reconnected to our hearts. I mean, and it comes from like the history of our country and the like Puritanism and stuff that is in our culture. And the fact, like if I can put it really bluntly, like what does it take generation after generation for us to be able to flog a person maybe to death and then go to church? Right. To outsource all of our labor, including nursing of our children to someone else. And call ourselves a Christian on the other side. To have zero respect for other human beings and to say we are biased people. Like, it's so, you have to shut off your feelings or you would not be able to get through your day. And then we did that generation after generation. And even if my family didn't come to the United States until the mid-1800s, we came into a culture that was already here. Mm -hmm. And... Even if we came then, it's not things are awesome even now when they certainly like mid-1800s were not awesome. And there were things that, you know, I'm sure my family did knowingly or unknowingly farming on land that is stolen from Native people. Mm-hmm. My, my family were dairy farmers. Where'd that land come from in the middle of Wisconsin? Right. <laughs> it's not right. ours. It was stolen. Mm-hmm. We were just like, oh, look, something we can have. Let's go get it. You know, so all of that requires that you ignore the humanity in other people and that you cut yourself off from your heart. 
where you wouldn't be able to do it. Which I feel like is the complete opposite of what I think the gospel teaches, you know, like when I, for me, like when I look at the gospel and who Jesus was, it was like, (laughs) you know, like I felt like Jesus entered into the messy. Yes. And he was, and Jesus was like, let's sit, let's talk this out. Let's be with another. Here's a meal. You know, it's like we had to come together and we had to see each other. And I feel like we are constantly taught over and over again, especially at the communion table where I believe everyone should be given the body and Christ mm-hmm. or the body and blood of Christ, you know, to be like, this is a time where we, you know, look at each other and are like on equal planes. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're sitting at a table, you are sitting there eye to eye, like equal. And I feel like we need to be able to get to that place where we can learn how to do that. And we have, in my opinion, so often avoided the vulnerable or mm-hmm. being vulnerability because one, it makes us touch into our weakness. Yeah. <laughs> it makes us know that, you know, what if we're not accepted? What if we're not loved? And I feel like so many of us are so af- deeply afraid of that. And I, I, we've been walling off the emotion so much that we've become callous. Yeah. Right? And I agree with you. Like, how are we able to do these things and exert power over others and then be like, praise Jesus, God yeah. almighty for whom all yeah. blessings flow. Sure. But for me, they flow for me. Hashtag blessed. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then it's, what does that mean? Like that's, I think that's taking away everything in terms of what, in my opinion, God came here for, or God was, and then how Jesus became a body, you know, like God became Yes. A body, flesh, you yes. know, and we're stripping that away from people. And it just, mm-hmm. it's so frustrating. Mm-hmm. And I know too, that I have so much to learn around this, Me you too. know, around race. I grew up, I learned very quickly when I went to Berkeley to study, to go to seminary mm-hmm. that, cause I grew up in a very white town and I found myself doing behaviors or experiencing, you know, walking down the street and then seeing a person of color, a male with a hooded sweatshirt on. And I would cross the street and I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, dude, that sucks. Why did you do that? Mm -hmm. It's immediately was Uh like, where did that, there was no need for you to do that. And I recognized like so many of the, I don't know if the correct word is implicit or the just like indirect things that you witness and are hearing day to day. Mm -hmm are implanted into your brain. Yes. And I just really realized like, oh, that you need to work on that. (laughs) Yes. You need to understand (laughs) where that's coming from and know that is not, that's Mm -hmm. not appropriate or okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not your fault that those things pop into your head. Like we've been acculturated into all of that. Yeah. I don't know if you want a lesson on implicit bias right now. I could do it. No, I do. Well, so I guess yes. I think like it's important to, because I, from my understanding, it, I'm wondering if your experience with loss and grief guided you into this work of race. And then if yeah. so, how, how and why was that the case? I think they're definitely interrelated. So f- for one, like I said, um, getting into this work of anti-oppression and learning more about it made a whole lot of things about my experience of grief click into place. So things that felt yucky at the time, but I didn't really have words for or needs that I was feeling at some level, but didn't have any way to express. I didn't, couldn't even name it to myself because I wasn't sure what it was start to make sense when I do this kind of work. And so I'll give you some specific examples. So it makes sense. I want to say like protectionism was a really big thing from some people in my family also like my father for instance of course it's a dad's job any parent's job to want to protect their children from harm and in this moment it was the worst thing that had ever happened to me and there was nothing he could do Mm -hmm. and i know that hurts and i mean it's hurt me even when like small stuff happens to my kids and there's nothing I can do about it except just hug them or something. So I know this is like the worst thing ever, but it, it 
the response rather than seek my consent over what I wanted to have happen was just like protect me and not even ask first. So for example, the day, the day that Kiefer died, we had to go to the hospital with the ambulance and all that. And we were there and we had to come home without him. And by the time we came home that afternoon, a lot of our family from out of town were already at our house. And I walked in the front door to see my dad and my husband's mom with a big trash bag taking all of the baby bottles and silverware and all the little dishes and things that Kiefer would have used and getting rid of them. And I was just like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Are you doing that? And they were like, had this frantic energy, like we got to get them all out before they get home. Like somehow seeing like anything might set me off this, of course, and it should, and it's fine. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to remove signs that my child was here. That doesn't, I if you take it away, her. then she's not, you know, it's, it's like trying to clear away. Yeah. Like the anguish and the grief and the yeah. heartache. And I get for them as parents, maybe this is an action we can take so that we're just like doing something in this moment when nothing can be done. Mm-hmm. So I do have a lot of, I mean, I hold that with a lot of grace, but it really pissed me off. Sure. And yeah. I made them stop. I was like, don't stop right now. Don't mm-hmm. take those things out of here. Mm-hmm. I also... You know, because this was a car accident, you know, there were marks on Kiefer's body and this protectionism or this desire for us to not see what's real because it hurts showed up at the funeral home too. I had specifically asked for them. We knew he was going to be cremated. They still wanted to embalm the body. I was like, that's unnecessary. Please don't do that. Not needed. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. So they backed off. And then they also, I said, you don't need to do anything. You know, we're just going to wait until the time it comes to go to the crematory and we will accompany him and all of that. And so that day came and I had to, I didn't have to, but he had, he didn't have clothes with him Mm -hmm. when he got taken to the funeral home because they'd all been cut off of his body at the hospital. Sure. And so I had picked out clothes to take there for him before he, his body went to the crematory and I decided that I wanted to dress him. And my dad was like, don't do it. You don't have to do that. That's why we pay funeral homes. You don't have to do that. Mm. I said, dad, you don't understand. Like I want to do this. Yeah. And it was just, and then I got there and the funeral home people had put makeup on him, which I had asked them not to do. And the guy even said to me, I know you said you didn't want to have makeup and things, but you know, there were some, just some parts I thought you wouldn't want to see. And Mm -hmm. I was like, do you think that I don't know what happened? Right. Like I, I guess, I don't know, maybe I'm weird or something, but I'm not somebody who wants to turn away from things when they're ugly. I, I didn't, there's no protecting me from it anyway. Mm-hmm. And now what I'm left with is a final memory of my child's body that smells like plasticky stage makeup. Oh God. Yeah. And it, it made me really angry. <laughs> I'm so angry. I mean, um, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. But like, I think too, we, as like a mom, you know, there's that desire to, you still wanted to care for him. Yes. You know, you wanted to be able to see his body, to hold it, to, you know, dress it one last time. And that's like something I feel like you needed. And they kind of took that from you. Yeah, a little. I mean, I did. I'm glad that I did make that choice and stick with it when people tried to talk me out of it Mm -hmm. because I did get to do that. Anyway, those are just like that feeling of protectionism, especially, you know, don't look at things that are hard or difficult that happened. I think people were afraid of me. (laughs) A lot of people (laughs) were afraid of me, like fearful about if I bring it up, I'm going to make her sad. It's not like Mm. I'm ever forgetting. Right. I'm not going to forget. And it, it... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm like, I mean, like, to be honest, that's how I felt too. It was like, I think it's too, because, you know, you can put yourself 
a little bit in that position to be like, oh my, and you know, just, oh my God. And Mm -hmm. I think because we don't have ritual or anything, at least in my opinion, or in the Christian context, I think in other religious um, groups, they do have better rituals around grief. And I feel like there's so much of this pressure of just, you know, get over it. Don't mention it. You know, we have a whole society where evidently if we don't talk about it, then it's okay. <laughs> you know, like uh-huh. with everything, you know, like. Or that that's up. the like polite thing to do. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which like when you're on the receiving end of that is the most surreal thing in the world. Mm. And if I can give like a corollary, it's the way we were trained. I mean, you and I care, like in our generation, we're definitely trained not to notice people's skin color. Like never, ever pointed out mm-hmm. as if it were like not there. <laughs> like it's, like, it's so strange. You're like, or it's that person who has a different skin color than me. <laughs> that's like made, And that's okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just like really weird or never mention if someone's different because mm-hmm. you mention it it'll be true. I don't know. It's okay that we're different. It's just so weird. It's so strange to me. That whole, even with people like, you know, when we're in like a grocery store and, you know, when you were a kid and you saw a person in a wheelchair or maybe another child with special needs Mm -hmm. and you're curious because you want to know and parents are like, don't say anything. Don't talk about it. Don't mention it. It's backwards. And then you feel invisible and lonely as the person who no one can mention. And because I know too, people are like, just talk about it. This is how I was made. This is who I am. Or this is what has happened because of something else. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that whole see me. Like Mm -hmm. people need to be seen. Mm -hmm. And when we like decide to silence a whole part of them, Mm -hmm. then what are we doing? And really who's uncomfortable? Not the person in that body. It's us. Who is it about, really, that we're going to, like, don't mention it? Like, even last night, I remember, you know, we were watching the Oscars. So if this comes, this is going to come out much later. (laughs) But (laughs) just for people to know. The spoilers are out by today, anyways. When we record this. Um, (laughs) But, you know, they were showing documentaries. And there was parts about, you know, uh, people like kids who were in the hospital with bullet wounds and stuff. And I was like chewing my kids away. So they wouldn't see it, you know, like I was the person too. And I'm like, and then afterwards I'm like, Oh, but they actually should know what's happening in our world, you know, and that Mm -hmm. this is reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I am very much, I think, um, guilty of that protection you know like even every time I say be careful for little things even getting scrapes and stuff you know mm-hmm. what I, mean? mm-hmm. I hate to say I feel like I'm one of those parents who are either like the helicopter parents are like oh don't get hurt don't get hurt you know who try to yeah. overprotect, and I'm like oh god <laughs> <laughs> I think relax <laughs> yeah I suppose sometimes I think it's a hard balance as a parent to know like how much is too much to Mm. expose them to or you know we don't just let them fly off into danger willy-nilly in the sake of like letting them learn (laughs) like Mm -hmm. you know sometimes it's hard to know where the balance is and for me like learning more about the socialization process I've been through Mm -hmm. as like a midwestern middle-class white lady um like how much of that is wrapped up in what I think of as where that balance is, you right. know what I mean? Like it, it's caused me a lot of introspection and I, and like it leaves my head spinning sometimes. Cause sometimes I don't know if I'm doing something because I've been told that's the way I'm supposed to do it by my right. culture mm-hmm. or if it's because that's actually how I want to parent and how I mm. believe I, how I believe I should parent. Yeah. I feel like that does get muddled. I feel like a lot of times, like, there's this expectation that we feel like we have to fit into very, I don't know, within this mold of this is how things should be and how you Mm -hmm. need to do it instead of Mm -hmm. sometimes allowing our gut instinct to, Mm -hmm. or to listening to our gut. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So based then on 
How do you wish that people could have allowed you to grieve or do you even know what that could have been for you? Mm -hmm. Or how do we need to change the way we talk about grief or deal with that? I think that I wanted people to feel things with me. Mm. And to go there. Yeah. Yeah. And to be okay with it if I went there in their presence. And it's something I still lack practice in myself. Mm. I'm getting better at being there through other people's stuff. I have a harder time sharing it sometimes. Mm. It really depends on the person, but it's pretty rare where I can just cry in front of somebody um, for any extended period of time. I think we're just really not good at sitting with hard emotions. Um, Even joy sometimes we tamp it down. Hmm. I feel like. Say more about that. Um, If you're like, if you ever allow yourself to be overtaken by just the joy of watching birds or something I don't know you know like watching the ocean and you feel like just laughter come over you or a desire to just run I don't know like to feel it in your body and imagine doing that in public in front of other people yeah with other people as witnesses that's true it's not yeah but we silence a grief and we silence that pure delight that we experience because mm-hmm. it's that's the whole it's the whole emotion thing like mm-hmm. we're afraid of maybe the big emotions mm-hmm. and what and because it's also i think makes us feel out of control yes i remember being at this um church in new york city and they were playing jazz music and it was just a marvelous thing and out of the blue this man just gets up into the aisle and like kicks his legs kicks his like hands in the air and shakes them and is just walking down that aisle of pure joy just mm-hmm. delight from this music and i just thought to myself if i had the courage to do what he can do because there's so many times like i i respond to music and things like that and what a delight it would be to just to feel that and just do that without feeling like I'm going to look like a dork. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. But this man, he brought like so much joy to me, but there was also people around who was like, what the hell's wrong with him? Mm-hmm. It's we automatically mm-hmm. think, and I also want to say people think, oh, are they mentally unstable? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Which is, and before you said that, I've never really thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. And I think, forgot where I was going to go with this. I mean, I guess I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, there were like 500 people at Kiefer's funeral and it was almost silent in there. Oh my God. Yeah. What is that? That's so strange. I mean, almost every funeral I've ever been to is like that. Actually, can I remember or tell you what I remember the most? Like for me, I had a, I don't know if I had told you this, but I had a stand in the sacristy part mm-hmm. and I had to look through the window so that John can do it. He said, I just need to look at your face so I don't break down. Mm-hmm. And I, the part that stood out the most about Kiefer's funeral was Matthias laughing with such delight, looking at pictures of his brother. Mm-hmm. Like he was just he had joy of seeing his face. And I was like, oh, I remember that part so distinctively. Mm -hmm. But then also the silence right after that. Yeah. Yeah. God, I love Matthias so much. (laughs) (laughs) So do I. Such a good kid. I mean, obviously he's my kid, so I have to. He's a great kid. (laughs) Yeah. But like how we, I mean... I get for John, like he was the, you know, sort of the MC of the whole affair and it kind of had to be on his game, I guess. But what would it be like if even he got to cry? I know, right? Like he should feel stuff too. And it's mm -hmm. okay if other people see it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if nobody cried because they didn't want to set me off or if it's just that, you know, we're not supposed to show emotion 
ever in church. Like, mm-hmm. it's just, like what is that? <laughs> it doesn't even make sense. So can, do you believe we can change? Do you think churches oh, and man. places can change? And if so, like, how do we get there? I mean, I'm changed. That's why I don't go to church anymore, though, Mm because I just can't even stand it, how dead it is sometimes. And not every space is like that, but I don't know. I'll say, like, you asked me earlier how maybe Kiefer's death is related to the work that I'm now doing. Mm-hmm. And I think it it relates to that big emotion thing and how if we're like we're afraid to go there because we f- we'll feel out of control. Mm-hmm. And I think that event obviously <laughs> proved to me that there is no such thing as control. Yeah. That's a complete illusion. And so it ripped a veil right off mm-hmm. of that whole notion that I ever had control of anything. Mm-hmm. And so why not just go there? It also taught me that I can feel all these things and not get and not be totally lost as a human. In fact, I might be more human for having felt them. And I'm not in any way advocating that people go through some like traumatic loss in order to get woke or whatever. Mm. But I do think that it um, prepared me for being willing to see and feel my way through what it takes for us to be able to change. Mm. I think that there's a lot of resistance from white people for wanting to dig into this work at all because we have to feel it if we're going to do anything. Mm. And, and that seems scary for lots of people. It's very scary. Mm-hmm. It's very scary because it's really like shakes the entire foundation of who you think you are. At least right. it did for me. And that's, that's an experience I've heard reiterated by many other people. Um, so do you want to tell a little bit then about the business you have created with some other fine women? Yes. Yeah, we're up now up to five women and non-men in our group. <laughs> Since you're helping people. I mean, like, part of what you're doing is helping people. I mean, you're doing what you want people to do, right? Like, you're teaching them, like, we have to be able to so. be in these spaces together. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, honestly, I got into it partly because I wanted to, like, do the work of helping other people. But I think that it was also me knowing that I, if I didn't make a drastic change to desegregate my life and to actively pr- pursue working in spaces that did not replicate all of the patterns that I know need to get undone, then I really was never going to be able to get out of it or see my way out of it. And so I think it was really like selfish actually (laughs) that I (laughs) did this choice of quitting my career, (laughs) um, trying something new. So I, I mean, I, to get to like how our group got started, We all met, at least the original four founders all met because we were working together at Kellogg Community College in an organization called the Center for Diversity and Innovation, which was doing similar work in the community in Battle Creek of educating people around racial equity, providing tools for transforming institutions, and building community. And that organization was funded by a grant grants want you to fix everything in three-year cycles and to never challenge the status quo. And so, you know, because challenging the status quo upsets the philanthropy institution too. I have so many feelings about this. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) they pulled the funding. And so all of us lost our jobs except for the, the director who is still at Kellogg Community College. But what we had experienced there at the Center for Diversity and Innovation, which we called CDI, was something none of us wanted to give up. Mm. Like we could not imagine after having worked there ever going back to some other quote unquote regular job. 
right. or to give up doing the work that we were doing or to not do it together. And so four of us decided to found the Truth and Titus Collective, which does similar work and is still growing and evolving. We call it that after Sojourner Truth, who is, was, is buried in Battle Creek. And so it's a way to honor that local legacy of activism and power and truth-telling and amazing solidarity with other women of all races. Frances Titus was a white woman who worked really closely with Sojourner Truth. She's also buried in Battle Creek. Neither of them are from here, but they chose to settle here. And Frances Titus was a person of privilege. She had been married to a banker and had inherited some wealth when he died. She had connections all over the country and some internationally. She had access to having had an education, which Sojourner Truth never got. And she leveraged all of that to make sure that Sojourner Truth was able to go and speak all over the country and to be well-resourced enough when she did it. And so... And, you know, both of them worked as abolitionists and suffragists, both, at a time when those two paths often did not cross. There were, like, white women suffragists who were like, you abolition people, you all can wait. We're going to get ours first, and then we'll see about you, maybe. Right. Um, and some of them were actively opposed to any kind of black liberation at all. They just wanted to vote for white women. They didn't mm -hmm. care about black people. Mm -hmm. So Sojourner Truth and Francis Titus were different. Anyway. So we like to be really grounded in the fact that they chose this place and put their energy here and the way that they did their work together intersectionally, leveraging all the skills that they had and really loved each other. It was not a transactional business relationship. Mm -hmm. Like they were really good friends. They cared for each other's children and really had a lot of love for each other. So all of that is what we try to emulate in our work and why it will be forever impossible to like work somewhere else that isn't founded in that kind of spirit. So how do you see the community and receiving your work? Hmm. That is a complicated answer which is why I'm hesitating <laughs> um, you know some people are gung-ho for this work and want more of it and there's also a lot of resistance yeah and so you know but that was to be expected that's been part of the pattern sure. for generations and so right we just sort of move through it the best we can and hope to you know keep doing it by creating spaces where people feel more whole. That's great. I mean, I'm glad that you're doing this. I feel like it's very brave work, you know, and then mm -hmm. it's stuff that so many of us need to embrace and learn and be changed by mm -hmm. so that we can be more human, mm -hmm. really. So we actually, unfortunately, are coming to time but I want to know, too, how can I say this? All this stuff is big stuff, so it's hard to even put them into, like, simple phrasing and wording. But I guess, what do you think has changed for you the most through these experiences with grief and race and and who you've become now? You know, like, what – does that make sense? I don't know if I'm saying that, but what has – what has been the biggest change for you? And then what do you wish that you can say to others based on your experiences with great loss and then learning about like centuries of loss for others? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's centuries of loss for others and for ourselves as mm -hmm. white people. We have given up things we don't even know we're missing. Yeah. It's hard to encapsulate like all of that learning yeah, right. in a short I'm amount like, of time. Five minutes, right? <laughs> five words or less. <laughs> can you ask me one more time? <laughs> if I can remember. Well, I, guess, I mean, I feel like there's so much. I mean, I've seen your transformation, you know, 
Like, I'm not who, done yet. So well, obviously, I'm, I'm going to still keep working on it. But I, <laughs> I mean, it's been like, I feel like you're someone who's always been very like brave to step into things, you know, like you've recognized, like when you changed your job, you're like, I need to do more. I love these kids. Like you were a fantastic teacher and people were like, loved you like every young person who I've met who knows you just care yeah, there's some deeply. that don't, don't agree well the ones I talked to were okay. like Sarah's amazing <laughs> and so you're willing I think to step outside of that because one you also saw I think the injustice that was happening even within the classroom yeah and different people oh, yes. and so and the fact then that you were able to just like resonate with what you experienced and learned that was really hard and to know that you didn't have the support necessarily that you could have had through that experience and then the fact that you have I mean like changing a career is a big step and then moving into this a a different career Mm -hmm. and to even take a loss maybe an income with that too which was like huge you know (laughs) but to do it because of the purpose and what it stands for. So the fact that you were able to do that, like it it says a lot about one, who you are, but also what you want all of us to know. I think that what I'd want most people to know is that the risk in making a change or being willing to look inside and or to look at history or to see ugly things like the risk in that is not as big as people fear that it is. Mm. And even if it is that big a risk, like uh, for me, it is not any longer possible to go back to the way I was before to, or to go back to my life before Kiefer died mm-hmm. or to go back to what it felt like before I really had a grasp on how deep this oppression stuff is in our culture. Like I can't go back, which means I have to make different choices mm-hmm. um, if I'm going to be true to my integrity at all. But I really do think like the fear is greater than the actual consequence for most of us. I believe that. How do people get over the fear? I guess a little at a time, maybe. I, like I said, I don't recommend ripping off everybody's veil in a tragic accident. Like, I yeah. can't believe I'm laughing as I say that. But I mean, I don't recommend trauma as the mm-hmm. thing that helps us. But I guess you have to be willing to take risks. And each time you take a risk and are willing to feel uncomfortable things and then not get not lose yourself, it gets easier going forward to keep taking risks Mm. if that makes sense yeah it does it does well this is amazing and good and i think people are gonna be like sarah johnson (laughs) i love her (laughs) she talked in circles for an hour no she did not (laughs) No, you did not. It was so, no, it was wonderful. And I appreciate you because again, I really do as like cheesy as this sounds, like look up to you a ton because Mm -hmm. I think you teach me how to do the things I'm fearful of. I'm like the biggest scaredy cat in the face. Kara, I don't think that's true. I have seen you take risks. I've never moved my family across the country to some city where I don't know anybody. Like, I stayed an hour away from my parents. I never leave Michigan to move somewhere with my family. Give me a break. You have taken no, but you're just like I don't know. I just adore you. So I adore you too. I just really appreciate the work you do, and I'm just going to continue to learn from you. So let's have that be a mutual thing. Yeah, I don't know that pedestals do us. Well, no, I mean, I'm looking at you eye to eye. Okay, (laughs) but I think it's great the stuff that you're doing, and I appreciate just the honesty that um, you're able to exude today even 
where we talk about something hard. So I think there's, we can learn so much through that. And I, so I know I didn't do like half of the questions I sent you, but. Okay. So <laughs> it would be a natural conversation. It's a natural conversation. Pause your five minutes are up. Let's go to question six. <laughs> like a debate. And <laughs> done. Right? Would the lady seed the floor? <laughs> mm. So another fun fact about Sarah and I is that we call each other, she's the eagle. <laughs> Mr. I'm not Carrot. doing it. <laughs> Don't break your microphone. Sarah can feel joy in public because she pretends to be an eagle and it's my favorite thing. <laughs> it's the call of the eagle and I can't do it in an enclosed space. I've no. told you this before. I know. They will flock to me and it's scary. <laughs> It's fun. So um, may we all be like Sarah and <laughs> to feel joy in public, even if that's sounding like an eagle. It helps know. to be in your mid forties and no longer care what people think of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm gonna stop the recording now. Okay. Or I should say, let me edit this part out, but then I'll be like, Oh, Sarah, this is what we need to know. Sarah, please tell us how we can learn about the work you do through Truth and Titus. How can people find you? We have a glorious website. Yes. What is that website? (laughs) Sorry. We should try again. Okay. Um, (laughs) People wanted to learn more about the Truth and Titus Collective. We're on the web at truthandtitus.com. Awesome. And they can contact you there if they have questions or want to use your... Do you guys do workshops and different things? Is this what you do? We do. We, we tend to partner with organizations over a longer term. Sometimes we do one-off workshops, but generally it's a longer series so that we get to work with people over time. And do you guys travel? We do. Awesome. So those who are not in Michigan can also utilize Truth and Titus. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I have fabulous colleagues. Yes, this is true. I know at least one of them. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Thank you so much for talking with me today. And I truly appreciate it. Thank you for asking me. Yay.